morning, Chapel family. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, the rain's getting to you just a little bit, but it's all good. Hey, it's been a great week for our family. Our oldest daughter, Alicia, moves to Auburn this week, so War Eagle. I've been making fun of Auburn for seven years, so I guess i got to change my jokes now, or at least, you know, stop giving them money. Um, a lot of good stuff going on. Toya is not here this morning. She is in Ohio for the funeral of Betty Snyder. Some of you know Miss Betty. Uh, Miss Betty Snyder was very influential in Toya's life. Her first mission trip to Haiti as a teenager, Miss Betty Snyder was, uh, started the missions organization in Haiti. She's kind of like the spirit-filled Mother Teresa of Haiti. She started many, 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 many churches, many orphanages, uh, many missions organizations, and she was also instrumental in us helping establish Chapel Haiti in the village of Doko. She was kind of the main piece that made that happened. She passed away two weeks ago, and Toya is there honoring her legacy and representing our church there. And so if you don't, or you're not familiar, we have a campus in Chap in Haiti. We have a, uh, not an orphanage, but a school that feeds children. We have 70 some odd students that we feed every single day. They get mentored, they get tutored, they get loved on, they get the gospel shared with them, because we believe in changing Haiti from the bottom up, not the top down. Uh, our other main outreach is the Shoals Dream Center, which is right across the street, which is a place we feed over a thousand families a month with a hundred plus pounds of groceries that includes meat and dairy and produce through a boutique grocery store. They get a voucher and they get to add value by shopping for their own food to take home to their families. And the Dream Center is an incredible ministry. It used to be loaves and fishes. And we've since kind of tried to bridge it with re the rest of the community. We prayed for Church of the Highlands this morning and they've just been incredible partners. They made an incredible financial gift to help us uh, through this pandemic two weeks ago. And so if you know anybody at Church of the Highlands, just let them know thank you for partnering with us and doing a kingdom work in this community and share with them on Facebook and Instagram, whatever else you do. So uh, we're great. We love Church of the Highlands um, and Pastor Caleb Chambers. They're just great team with us. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue uh, this series, Still Holy. This is the fourth week. The first week we talked about God is still holy, holy, holy. He has not changed. He's still holy. He still expects us to be holy. The second week we talked about he's crowned in holiness of all his attributes, Holiness is what holds his goodness, his jealousy, his love, his justice, his mercy all together. It's all crowned in his holiness. And then last week we talked about you were made holy by Jesus to live holy for Jesus. And today we're going to unpack that a little bit deeper. And so, so some things change when you grow up and you start having kids that move from toddlers and babies and, and elementary school to teenagers. And so to kind of give you an illustration a couple weeks ago, I was with Toya, and she wanted to stop and get some to eat. I really wasn't hungry. She wanted to go to um, Chick-fil-A, also known as the Holy Chicken, also known as God's Chicken, also known as the Holy Place, also known as all these things. I'm more of a Popeye's fan myself. I like my food with flavor, but if you don't like flavor, you can go to Chick-fil-A if you're a soccer mom. And so Toya loves Chick-fil-A. And so if you're a great fan of certain places or restaurants, they put you in part of a club. They call it a rewards club. I would call it a gang. So she's part of the reward gang at Chick-fil-A, and so she orders her food ahead of time. So you pull through the drive-thru, and you know, they got two lanes, there's cars everywhere, and you know, these teenagers walk up with iPads, and Toy says, I ordered on my app. And they said, okay, what's your name? And she said, Gorley. And so the lady starts going through her iPad looking for Gorley. She can't find Gorley anywhere. And then finally, she realizes that there's only one last thing, because I guess they go first name first and then last initial, and she only sees one G, and she looked up, she said, Karen? And Toy just dropped her head, and she's like, yes, it's Karen. And I was like, what? She said, our girls had changed all her 
password, all her usernames, all her rewards accounts in her phone from Toya Gorley to Karen Gorley. Now, yes, I can say this because she's not here. Yes, she is uh, very commonly calling to talk to the manager. Yes, she kind of addresses life through a Karen mindset. Uh, another time I went to Starbucks, pick up her coffee, and I'm looking for her, her ice caramel macchiato, and I'm looking for Toya G. I'm looking for Toya. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And I said, hey, did y'all not fix that ice caramel macchiato? And they said, yeah, we did it like five minutes ago. I said, well, it's not here. And they said, no, it's right there. And I look and said, Karen. <laughs> and what's funny is Toya can't figure out how to change it. And so to our kids, her identity is Karen. And so they've given her a new identity or a different identity. And I say that to say this, that when you have an identity you value, you allow that identity to shape your life. When, when you have an identity that you truly cherish and value, you're going to let it mold your thinking, your living, your behavior, your decisions, your relationships. Toya does not value the Karen identity. She values who she is in Christ. She lets that define who she is, not what other people say that she is. And when you truly value your identity, you will allow it to dictate who you are becoming. And this works in every area of life. If you identify as a victim and you take value in the attention you get as a victim, you allow that mindset to shape who you are. If you take on your identity, your sexuality, you'll begin to let that shape who you are and how you act. If you take on as your identity a political party, a political platform, you'll let that shape who you are. We know this because when you value an identity, you'll start dressing like that identity. If you value being an Alabama fan, you'll start wearing all crimson red. If you value your identity as a redneck, you start dressing like a redneck. And God has given us a brand new identity in Jesus. And I can tell if you value that identity or not based on how you allow that identity to shape who you become. In order for you to live holy, you have to, realize, you have to realize that God has given you a brand new holy identity in Jesus. And when you value that identity, it will begin to affect every other area of your life. It will affect your thinking, your worldview, your perspective, how you walk, how you talk, how you carry yourself, how you behave, how you relate to other people, how you love other people. It will change everything about you, but it's all coming from this place of identity. So if you would stand to your feet as we read Ephesians 4, I'm going to start in verse 17 together. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Ephesus. He says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you may no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. He's, he's literally describing the, the Gentile population, the community at Ephesus. He's saying their hearts are hard and their head is hard. And I've learned those two are connected. If your heart becomes hard, your head will become hard. And your hard head will make you learn things the hard way. And he's saying, this is the Gentiles, but that is not the way you learned 
Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Touch your neighbor and say, put off. He said, you got to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life or to the old life you used to live and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Everybody say, put on. He said, you got to put some things off. You got to put some things on. You got to put some things off. You got to put some things on. The Christian walk is about learning the what to put off and what to put on. Put off something and put something on. The new self created after the likeness of God in what true righteousness and holiness. He's saying the new you is holy and righteous. Don't walk like the old you because the old you's going the wrong direction. Walk like the new you because the new you, man, that sounds like I'm rapping right now. The new you is new. The new you has a future and a destiny. A new, the new you has an eternal purpose. The old you is going the complete opposite direction with no purpose, no destiny, no hope, just going in circles. He says, quit walking like the old person. Start walking like the new. Father, we bless you in this place. And we thank you, Father. This is not a religion we come to participate in practice. This is not some philosophy we, we're trying to walk out through life. Father, this is a transformation from death to life, from old man to new man. Father, from being going in the wrong direction to running straight towards you to the throne of heaven. Father, we praise you right now that you have changed us and transformed us. You reached down in the pit and pulled us out cleaned us up and made us brand new. Father, I pray that you challenge us to live like it. Father, I pray that you challenge us to live like who you made us to be. And Father, as you do, we'll walk with confidence, boldness, strength, humility, peace, and love, and power as we display your glory to all those around us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So to understand, this to give you a little Bible quick lesson real quick, the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are written by disciples who are walking with Jesus. It's a narrative of the life of Jesus. Then you get into the epistles. Epistles is a fancy word. It means letter. You have the pastoral epistles, which Paul was writing to churches. He helped start or he was trying to help get off the ground or, or help train them and develop their pastors. And you have epistles like Ephesians. All it means is letter to the church at Ephesus. Galatians is a letter to the church at Galatia. Corinthians is the letter to the church at Corinth. So all this is a letter from Paul, from what God has told him, writing to the church at Ephesus. And he starts telling them things like, stop walking like your old self. Stop walking like the Gentiles. So Ephesus was a place that was very Roman in culture. So there was a lot of secular worship, a lot of secular gods, a lot of worldliness there. And so most of these believers are coming out of culture into the church. And he describes them, and he said, stop walking like them. So the same way, if it was a letter to the Church of America, he would say, stop walking like the Americans. If it was to the Iranian church, it would be like, stop walking like the Iranians. You're not Iranian anymore. You're now Christian. Stop walking like the Japanese. You're no longer Japanese. You're now in Christ. And so the letter is really having this, this contrast between the culture and who God has created us to be. And he says words like this. He says, they're futile in mind. 
mean, they have no purpose. They're not going anywhere. They're just walking through life with no purpose. They're darkened in their understanding. They think, but they don't understand. They're alienated from God, and they're distant from each other. They're isolated from one another. They're ignorant. They're hard-hearted, and they've given up themselves to sensuality and greed and impurity. It reminds me a lot of America. It reminds me a whole lot of America. There's a whole lot of thinking, but not much thinking that gets us closer to God. There's a lot of isolation and alienation in America based off belief systems and races and structures and, and even isolation just because of our screen time. Then there's futile in mind and there's ignorance and there's giving ourselves up to sensuality. And Paul says, stop walking like that. And he uses this term, put off and put on. Put off and put on. Uh, John Owens, who was a Puritan, said it's called mortification and vivification. Mortification means to let something die. Vivification means to let something live. And he says you got to let some things die, and you got to let some things live. And the way Paul explains it here is if you have the right belief, if you've learned about Jesus, and the truth is in Jesus, it should change the way you live for Jesus. And so what he's saying is right belief equals right behavior. Wrong belief equals wrong behavior. If you get caught up in wrong doctrine and theology, it will lead to wrong behavior. That's why you have to appoint people and yourself to Jesus. Yeah. Don't point them to Bobby Gorley. Don't point them to Stephen Furtick. Don't point them to Joe Olstein. Don't point them to T.D. Jakes. Don't point them to Matthew Stevenson. Point them to Jesus. The truth is in him. Right. And when you have the truth in Jesus, it will change the way you live. He says, put it off and put it on. Put it off and put it on. What he's saying is, we should look differently, we should live differently, and we should love differently when we're born again. Right. It's, that easy. it's that easy. He's saying, you should take something off and you should put something on, meaning you should look different. Now, in, in Bible Belt culture, it's a little bit more difficult. It's easy if you're in secular culture and somebody gets saved, you know they should look differently than the worldly culture. If you're in North Korea and you get saved, you know that they should look differently than the culture in North Korea. It's a little bit more difficult when you get saved in the Bible Belt because we've so well blended our Southern traditions with the church, it's very hard to distinguish between the two. So many times when people give their lives to Jesus, all they do is become a better Southern Belt Christian rather than a Christian. Meaning, they just try to apply better morals to their life so they can fit in with the Southern Bible Belt culture. I would actually say it's harder to be a follower of Jesus in the Bible Belt than it is in a secular environment. Because at least in a secular environment, you're comparing your growth to that which is far away rather than people who are pretending and faking their way to heaven. In the Bible, I call it church clothes. Lecrae wrote an album, church clothes. Church clothes means this. Nothing in your life really changes. You still live your life the same way you used to live it. You kind of still go to the same places, same relationships, do the same thing. You just put on different clothes on Sunday morning, go to church, and fake it to make people think you're doing really good. But in reality, nothing has really changed in your life. You just covered it up by going somewhere different on Sunday mornings and putting on some different clothes. Now, I know this because I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in church at all. No one in my family went to church. I didn't have any church clothes. I remember when I was six years old, I went to Easter service one time, and I had a pair of really short Daisy Duke blue khaki shorts. I don't have the legs for Daisy Dukes. I had a little white shirt, had a little clip-on tie, and that was the only tie I ever had, because when I was in high school, when I was doing homecoming court 
all these things, have to go to my buddy's house and steal his dad's dress shoes and his tie. And I had to make sure his dad had, had a tie that was already tied because I didn't know how to tie a tie to wear to homecoming court and to escort and all those other things. Then when I got in the Air Force, I had to learn how to tie a tie just to pass inspection. So I didn't have any suit ever until I went to the Air Force. Then I'd get saved after I'm in the Air Force. The only problem with getting saved is to go to church in the Bible Belt, you needed a different wardrobe to worship Jesus. And we went to this small, black, charismatic church, and everyone there wore three-piece suits and gaiters. And I had no gaiters. I had no three-piece suit. I didn't have a two-piece suit. I didn't have a one-piece suit. So I had to go to my buddy Tommy I grew up with. He owns a little suit store. His, his dad's from uh, Palestine. They had a suit store. I said, I need a suit. The problem with cheap suits, and all my suits are cheap, the problem with cheap suits is they're one-size-fits-all. What that means is the jackets are all fitted correctly, but the pants, there's different waist sizes, but the links are all super long because when you buy them, they will hem them to fit. The problem with that is the inseam doesn't change, so the crotch in my pants would come all the way to my knees. I look like MC Hammer going to church. So it was the first suit I ever had because I had to have it to go to church. Because in the Bible Belt, we don't really care who you are. We just care about who you pretend to be. So you can live your life like the devil throughout the week as long as we don't know about it and you come to church on Sunday, you put on the right clothes, put on the smile, and you put a little money in the plate. That's not the Christianity Jesus was talking about. And, and I love dressing up. There, there is some philosophy to why people dress up for church. One is, I believe when you put on your best, sometimes you give God your best. Two, in, in black church culture, it, it was the only, Sunday was the only day many of the slaves on the plantation could wear clothes that weren't their slave clothes, so they took more pride in what they wore on Sunday because it was the only chance of independence and freedom they had. So there is some philosophy and in, in theology of why, but I don't believe God cares about what you wear to church. I believe he cares what's on the inside. I believe he cares about what's on the inside of you and who you're becoming, not what you are wearing. And he says here very clearly, very clearly, that what you're wearing on the inside is vitally important. I believe there's three categories of, of Christians. One, you have church-closed Christians. Church-closed Christians are people who never take off anything. When he says, put off the old man, take off the old self, you never put anything off. You never put off temptation. You never put off bondage. You never put off addiction. You never put off lust. You never put off sin. You just put on some clothes and cover it up. You look the part, but underneath, you're still stanky. Underneath, you still have the stench of sin. You still have the stench of the old you because you never put off the old you. You just try to cover it up. And the problem is, you can cover it up with some Axe body spray or some cologne or some perfume for a minute. But at some point, everybody else smells it. At some point, God smells it. At some point, you smell it, but yet you keep covering up. So you look like you're saved, but you're not experiencing the freedom and the hope and the peace that Jesus died for you to experience. Because the freedom comes from putting off the old man, not from putting on the new man. And so if you don't put off the old man, you just cover it up. You're a church-clothed Christian. So it looks like you have freedom, but you're in terrible bondage. You're in terrible rest of your soul. Then you have naked Christians. Naked Christians are those who they take off the old man, they put off their lust, they put off their sin, they put off their temptation, they put off their old man, they put off all the stuff they had, but they never put on Christ. 
So now you're exposed to the elements of temptation. Now you're exposed to the elements of the world. Now you're exposed to the things of the world. So you have freedom, but you don't have the rest because you're carrying the burden yourself. You're not covered by Jesus. Every battle, every struggle, every temptation hits you right in the heart. It's a legalism, and you're tired and weary because when it's cold, you're cold. When it's hot, you're hot. You have no protection from the elements. But then you have the third Christians. You have church clothes Christians. You have naked Christians. Then you have dressed to the nines Christians. So touch your neighbor and say dressed to the nines. So this would be Chris Little in, in church world. So Chris Little, he, he, my whole goal for Easter is to be Chris Little. Chris going to wear pastel blue. He's going to wear a red suit, white pants. Like He's got it. So now every year, two years ago, I had mint green pants just to be Chris. Wow, he's dressed to the nines. When you're dressed to the nines, it means you've taken off the old you. When you've taken off the old you, you've put off the old temptations, the old struggles, the old demons, the old, the old worries, the old anxieties, the old addictions. You've put it off, but you've also put on the new you. You put on the things of Christ. You put on love and peace and holiness and, and Jesus. You put him, and he covers you. And protects you from every arrow of the enemy. He protects you from the elements of the world. He protects you from the temptations of the enemy. In this scripture, Paul is saying, don't just put off the old man. That's religion. You can put him off and put him off and put him off, and he keeps coming back. But when you put off the old man, put on Christ. And when you put on Christ, the old man's not coming back. That is the Christianity Paul is talking about in this scripture. You got to put something off, you got to put something on. Put something off, put something on. Notice. God doesn't say he's going to do it. God doesn't say, I'm going to take off the old man for you. I'm going to put on the new man for you. Paul says, you need to put him off yourself. Then he says, you need to put on the new man yourself. Half the Christian walk would be complete with just a little bit of effort by God's people. I'm not talking about earning salvation. I'm not talking about works-based religion. I'm just talking about we don't work to get God's approval. We work because we already have God's approval. And I have to do some work. I have to put off temptation. I have to put off lust. I have to put off sin. I have to put off these things. I have to also work to put on the things of Christ. And so the main point of this is live like the new you, not the old you. Live like the new you, not like the old you. The old you is going the wrong direction. The new you is moving forward. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we talked about last week. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That word in there for that change has come is metamorphosis, which is the same word we get for a butterfly and caterpillar transition and change. So if you know anything about metamorphosis, a caterpillar builds a cocoon, stays in a cocoon. When he grows into a butterfly, he leaves the cocoon. There's, there's a change that happens that changes the caterpillar completely from one thing to another. What would be crazy is if you have a caterpillar who's used to working and living on the ground, walking through the mud, walking through the dirt, getting dirty, getting nasty, slowly crawling from one place to the next, becomes a butterfly with these beautiful wings. If you saw that butterfly crawling through the mud, slowly struggling instead of flying from place to place. There's so many believers that you are no longer a caterpillar, you're a butterfly. But instead of flying and displaying the beauty of the new life you have, you're still walking in the same mud pass you had before. 
One, one, one of my friends told me years ago, a mentor said, it's the same as looking at this old story. There was a prince who, who needed a wife. It was time for him to take over the kingdom. He had to be married before he could take over the kingdom. And every girl in the kingdom wanted the prince to be their husband. But there's this one lady who lived in this, the village, and she was the town prostitute. Everyone knew it. She was ashamed of herself. Everyone knew, stay away from her. She's the, the town prostitute. And one day the prince left the castle, went through the village. He's going through the marketplace, and he spots this beautiful woman. The only problem is, it's not just any beautiful woman. It's the town prostitute. He walks and talks to her. And everybody's gawking at this prince, talking to this dirty, shameful woman. And he's talking to her. He says, I want to have dinner with you tonight. But she said, you don't know who I am. He said, oh, I know who you are. But I see something in you that is different than who you are. And he had dinner with this prostitute. Everyone in the village is talking bad about this prince, the future king. About how could he have dinner with this prostitute? Everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows what she's done. How could he ever sit down with her? And he has dinner with her, this amazing banquet. And he says, I want to make you my wife. She says, me? Me, I... I'm just the town prostitute. He said, well, I'm the king. And if I make you the queen, you'll no longer be the prostitute. You'll be the queen. And they have this amazing, amazing wedding ceremony. She's dressed to the nines. He's dressed. The whole village is there. They're all talking smack, talking trash. How could our king marry such a shameful, despicable woman? And the doors fly open to the cathedral and walks in the most beautiful bride they'd ever seen. She looked different. She walked different. Her shoulders were pushed back. There was confidence on her face. She was enamored. She was crying. She was full of tears. She walks down the aisle. The prince marries this prostitute. She's no longer a prostitute. Now she's a queen. So the question would be, when she walked back to the marketplace, do you think she walked as a prostitute or a queen? Do you think it changed her behavior, it changed her attitude? Because no longer is she her old self, now she's her new self. When you realize that you used to be the prostitute. You used to be the person that was ashamed. You used to be the person people talk bad about. But God saw something in you that was redeemable. God saw something in you. He wanted to marry you and connect and come in communion with. And when he marries you, you're no longer your old you, you're the new you. And much like that princess, when you know who you are now and you value that you're a queen and it's not because your own doing, it's because he made you a queen. It's because he made you a king. It was his love for you that changed you and transformed you. When you realize he's changed you and transformed you, it should change the way you walk. You shouldn't walk to the same places you used to go to. You should walk differently than you used to. There should be some boldness, some confidence, some humility, some strength, some power, some beauty, because everywhere you go, you don't go as a prostitute. You go as the queen. Paul's saying, live like the new you. Could you imagine the princess, this queen, leaving the castle and going back to her old duties? Could you imagine her going back to the marketplace, back into prostitution? Could you imagine her selling herself for a few dollars when she had riches galore in the castle? No, she would never do that. Why? Because she knew who she was now in the kingdom. And when you know who you are in the kingdom, it changes everything else about you. And so Paul says you got to put some things up. You should have put off the prostitute mentality. 
She had to put off the old way. She had to put off her old habits and routines and customs because you cannot live your new life in Jesus dragging the stench of your old life with you. You can't live the new life that Jesus wants for you by dragging the old you along with you. You, you can't wear the old clothes. They stink. They stink like a 14-year-old boy teenager. There is not enough body spray in the world to cover it up. It stinks. So could you imagine standing before the king and all you did was put on a suit to cover up the stench? No, you have to, you have to quit dragging the old you along because some things don't belong in your new life. And you can't tame sin. you got to kill it. See, works-based religion just tells you, you just try to work your way out of it. Try to do enough good stuff. Do enough good stuff, maybe that'll cover up the old bad stuff. No, you can't tame sin. Sin is not something you control. My pastor told me one time, he said, make sure you crucify all of your flesh. Because whatever parts of your flesh you don't crucify comes out when you get older and you're in the retirement home. He said, because you can no longer control your body or your mind and whatever you didn't crucify. If you had a foul mouth, it's going to come out. If you had a f- bad jokes, they're going to come out. If it was lust, it's going to, he said, you cannot tame it. You must kill it. And there was a woman in Pennsylvania who worked in a, a zoo at some point, and she adopted a baby cub bear, a bear. She had it as a cub, had it for nine years. She had this cub in her house. She played with the cub. She fed it from a bottle. She played games with this cub. She had the cub, and she just played with it. After nine years, one day, this bear mauled her and killed her. And the neighbor said, well, she was such a a good person. Like, it's it's crazy. She was a nice person. She was a good person, all these things. But the bear just raised up and did what bears do. Bears aren't pets, they're wild animals. In the same way, sin is not a pet that you tame. It's a wild animal. It has one purpose, to kill you. And you cannot tame it. You cannot train it. You cannot suppress it. It must be killed. And right here, Paul says, put off the old man. In Romans 6, he says, you got to kill that thing. John Owen says, be killing sin or it be killing you. Meaning, you have to kill it. Something's going to die. Either you or sin. I would work at killing sin. Romans 6, 11, Paul says this, 6, 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole thing. Paul says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's connecting killing sin to walking in the newness of life. For we've been buried, been united with him in death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, we will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. 
that King James says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, you got to consider the old man dead. You got to consider your sin dead. You got to reckon it dead and then consider yourself alive in Christ. Mark Batterson, one of my favorite authors, he talks about mock funerals. And in, in one of his latest books, he says, mock funerals is when you, you have a funeral for something as a symbolism. He said, years ago, the New York Jets got beat by the Patriots 45 to 3 on Monday Night Football. They called it the Monday Night Massacre. Like one of the worst defeats Rex Ryan had ever taken in football. The next practice, he went by the practice field, literally dug a six-foot deep hole, placed the game ball in the hole as the whole team was around singing Amazing Grace, reading Psalms 23, places the ball in the hole. They have a funeral. They bury the hole. Six weeks later, they meet the Patriots in the playoffs and win. Why? They considered that last game dead. Steve Jobs, back in 2002, when they were releasing OS X, at the Apple forum with all the developers, they brought everybody in. He brings a whole casket up on the platform. They're playing instrumental music. He steps up, and he starts saying a eulogy for OS 9. He said, OS 9 is dead. He said, we're no longer going to focus on developing OS 9. We're no longer going to give attention to OS 9 because OS X is here. Sometimes you have to have symbolism to remind yourself, I'm no longer going to put energies into my sin. I'm no longer going to focus on developing the old man. I'm going to place my energies in the new man. What's amazing about that is there's psychological things that happen when you consider things dead. Right. And the problem I have is in church world, we already have a mock funeral. We call it baptism. The only problem with our baptism is we look at it as a church family tradition rather than a reckoning of something dead. When you get baptized, there should be some things that stay in the water. But here's how we do baptism. We do baptism. Well, you know, I, I can't get baptized today. My, my great-grandmother's out of town. She won't see me get baptized. So you won't let that old man live another week. Well, you know, little Johnny, like, you know, he's want to get, he's want to get baptized. You know, we, we're, we got to send out invitations and we have, da, da, da. no, no, see, we have, we have religiousized so many spiritual principles, they lost the power. We've religiousized prayer, which no longer meeting face to face at the throne room of grace. It's now something you say before you eat. We've religiousized baptism so much, it no longer has the power of when you come out of the water, I have been cleared of a guilty conscience because the old man is dead. There's symbolism there. There's something there. It's a mock funeral that something's staying in the water. When I come out, I'm coming out brand new. Yeah. See, mock funerals help you reckon yourself dead. You got to put off that old man. Here's six ways real quick just to help you. Number one, six ways to kill sin or put off the old man. One, take sin seriously and call it what it is. Sin is sin. Call a spade. We taught our kids how to play spades when we were on sabbatical. Like we had to teach them what a spade is. You call a spade a spade. Sin, when you mess up, is not a, well, you know, I, I just messed up or, you know, I, I slipped up or I'm just being tempted or my priorities aren't right or, or, you know, I'm just struggling in this area or no, 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 it's sin. 
Like, and we've whitewashed so many things that one of the worst things in church world right now is the sexual purity of the church is probably less than the sexual purity of the world. Because the church will come, well, you know, at least I'm being faithful, or you know, God is gracious, God is loving. No, no, it's adultery, it's fornication, it's immorality. And you'll never kill it until you call it what it is. If it's just a slip up and a mistake, you'll say, well, can you just pray for me? I'm, I'm going to try not to do that again. No, you got to kill that thing. And you're not going to kill something until you identify. You can't fight an enemy until you identify who the enemy is. Take it seriously to remind yourself who you are and whose you are. So I'm going to call sin what it is, but I'm also going to remind myself, I am not a sinner saved by grace. I am the righteousness of Christ. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. I'm a holy priesthood, a holy nation. I've been sanctified and set apart. I've been consecrated in every other theological word you can think of. I am different than who I used to be. I am Bobby, not the old Bobby. I am Bobby, the one who is perfect in the eyes of Jesus. And I'm not just anybody's son. That's my daddy. And he paid a huge price for me. He has washed me. He set my feet up on solid ground. I know who I am. And when I know who I am, it'll change the way I live. Three, do whatever it takes. Everybody say whatever. whatever. Do whatever it takes to remove temptation from your life. Identify what triggers your temptation. Identify what sparks old desires in your life. Identify them and then do whatever it takes to remove them from your life. Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, verse 29, he says this. This is Jesus talking. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So it's amazing. People say Jesus didn't talk about hell. It's amazing. He just talked about it. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going into hell. That's a hyperbole. What that means is Jesus uses an exaggeration to make a point. He's saying, find out what causes temptation and remove it. Remove it. If it's Facebook or Instagram, if it's the TV, remove it. It's better to not know what's cool in the world than it is to be full of sin. If it's people of the opposite sex, maybe you dealt with promiscuity or infidelity or adultery. Maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't have intimate conversations with people of the opposite sex one-on-one. Maybe you should remove that temptation out of your life. If it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction, maybe, just maybe, you should make sure you don't tempt yourself. Like, like there's simple principles. Run from sin. Don't try to get as close. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, flee from temptation and youthful passions and pursue righteousness. What that means is when you get to the line of temptation and the enemy starts trying to tempt you to step over the line into sin, don't say, well, I wonder how close I can get and God's still okay with me. I wonder how far I can push the sexual boundary before God considers it sex. Or I wonder how much alcohol I can drink before God considers me intoxicated or influenced by wine. And we try to get as close as we can, but Paul says, if you're thinking that way, you're already wrong. He says, flee from that and pursue something differently. 
Meaning you have to do whatever it takes to remove temptation from your life. Number four, don't open any old doors. Like this one is huge. Don't open any old doors. Meaning before you were saved, there was doors you opened to walk into sin. There was doors of temptation. There was doors of lust. There was doors of promiscuity. There was doors of addiction. There was doors of drugs. Whatever the doors were that you were walking through. When you get saved, Jesus closes all those doors and opens new doors that you can walk through. But at some point in our Christian walk, especially, this is it's a word for somebody. I, I've seen young women who get married very early and have kids very early, at some point around the age of 30 years old, start trying to walk through old doors because they've gotten so weary and tired of being a mom, they feel like they missed out on the best years of their life. And they go on social media, they open up doors of old boyfriends, doors of high school flings, doors of attraction, doors of sexuality, and they open those doors because they're so bored with their current life, they want to experience the old life they feel like they missed out on. I'm telling you, if, if you dealt with alcoholism, you better not open the door and go say, well, I'm doing evangelism at the bar. No, you are walking back into the devil's playground. If you dealt with pain pill addiction, and the doctor tries to prescribe you Oxycontin or some high form of medication, tell them, I'm going to do everything I can not to take that medication. I don't want to open that door again. There's doors in your life that should never be back opened. And when you begin to knock on the door, I promise you the enemy won't open. Five, practice regular confession. Confess your sin daily. To Jesus and to somebody else you trust, confess it daily. Because the more you confess your sin, the more forgiven you'll feel. And the enemy will tempt you by making you feel guilty for sin you've already confessed. Confess it daily. And then number six, don't fight sin alone. If you fight sin alone, I promise you, you're going to lose. You need accountability. You need people watching your blind spots, watching your backside. You need people helping you fight off temptation and sin. Somebody that can kick you in the rear end and tell you you're walking the wrong direction. You need people to help you fight it off because you have to put off that old man over and over again. John chapter 11, for those familiar, is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is a close friend of Jesus. He was, he was sick. They thought he was going to pass away. Jesus waited a couple of days. He passed away. Jesus shows up. They said, you're too late, Jesus. Lazarus is already dead. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said, he's not dead. He's just, he's just asleep. They said, no, Jesus, you don't understand. His body's already stinking. He says, pull back the, the tomb. Open the tomb. Pull back the stone. They pull back the stone. The body's stinking, just like the old clothes we used to wear. And he says, the, Lazarus, come forth. Right? Could you imagine being at a funeral? The pastor says, open up the casket. They open up the casket. You don't realize he's been dead for a week. He said, I don't care. Open up the casket. Bobby, I hope it's my funeral. Bobby, come forth. And they get up out of the casket? Like, I saw a video this week on YouTube where a dude recorded his own funeral sermon. They're at the graveside. They start playing it. And he's actually, before he died, he's playing like he's trying to get out of the coffin. He's knocking on the, something. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. This dude is messing with his family hardcore time. Could you imagine? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth. But Lazarus doesn't come forth looking like a new creation in Christ. 
Lazarus doesn't come out of the tomb looking polished, looking like he's got his best clothes on, looking like he's got his three-piece suit and his gaiters. He's not coming out looking like he's new. He comes out bound up in grave clothes. It's like a mummy coming out of the tomb. And he's walking, but when he's walking, he can't walk the walk correctly of the new life because he's so bound up by his old life. Even though he has new life, I think I would be running if I was Lazarus. But Lazarus can't run because he's so bound up by his old life in the grave clothes that he's walking. He's probably stumbling, carrying the weight of all this stuff. And he's trying to walk the walk, but he can't walk the walk because he's carrying the grave clothes of his past. And Jesus says, well, y'all unbind him. And if he can unwrap the clothes, the next thing you see is Lazarus sitting with Jesus as Mary washes his feet and anoints his feet for burial. The next thing you see, Lazarus is living his new life, but his new life could not be lived till the old life is taken off and put off. Some of you, Jesus has called you out of the tomb and you're still walking around stumbling and tired and weary because you're carrying the old life with you. And as you try to walk the walk, you're wobbly to and fro. And Jesus says, it's not because I haven't done my work. I'm waiting for you and somebody to help you take off the grave clothes off of your life. You cannot walk the Christian walk with the old man still on. You have to put him off so Jesus can put something new on. If people would just realize that, the work of Jesus was the resurrection of the tomb, but the work of man was to take the grave clothes off. And some of you stopped at the moment Jesus resurrected you and you're tired and you're weary you're worn out and you're asking yourself Jesus where's the freedom you promised where's the peace you promised where's the hope you promised once you take off those grave clothes here's what he says put on the new self you're already a child of God live like it and dress like it don't wear your grave clothes. Don't walk around naked. Put on, Christ says, put on the new self. Meaning, there's a new you the world is waiting to see. There's a new you that your wife is waiting to see. There's a new you your husband is waiting to see. There's a new you your kids are waiting to see. There's a new you your boss and your employees are still waiting to see. There's a new you your students at your school, the players on your team. There's a new you people are waiting to see. Are you going to let them see it or are you going to let them see the old you? Be who Jesus died for you to be. It's that simple. Because holiness is not... Always actions. Holiness is just conforming to the character and attitude of Jesus. Holiness is just looking and living like Jesus. It's that simple. But it's not just actions. It's not rules to follow. It's attitude. It's desire. It's heart. It says, put them on. A couple years ago, some of y'all don't know Harley Duncan. Harley, man, he's, he's our spiritual son. We tried to adopt him uh, legally and weren't able to do that. But when I was doing young adult ministry in Nashville, Harley's mom died when I think he was 15 or 16. He kind of floated from house to house with his aunts and his grandmothers and friends and family. He turned 18, went to college. All the trauma and all the just junk he dealt with as a teenager was just extremely difficult. Had a terrible time at college. Moved back to Nashville, and he called our church office one day. 18-year-olds never do this. Calls the church office, says, hey, I really need to get connected. I'm going through some things. Um, is there anybody I can talk to? So he came to church that Wednesday night, and 
We met with him. I had breakfast with him the next morning. I said, hey, we have a mission trip to El Salvador. He said, I'm going. Now, he'd only been to the church on a Wednesday night, not even a Sunday morning yet. I said, I'm going. I said, what's well, this much money? He said, I'll pay it. I said, okay. So he ends up going on the trip. He's at our house all the time. We're connected. We make the announcement in 2014 to our young adult ministry in Nashville. Hey, we're moving to Florence, Alabama. Kind of shared the vision, shared the heart of what was going on. Harley didn't say a word. He didn't call me, didn't text me. The next week, Harley called me and said, hey, I already have a place in Florence, Alabama. He literally beat us here. He's here. He registered for UNA. We get here about two months later. Everybody in Florence already knows Harley. Like he is famous in Florence, Alabama. Everybody knows him. He's a hipster. He's charismatic. He's lovely. All these things. And one day, we, we've, we literally tried to legally adopt him and the state of Alabama would not let us do so. He's now living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they have the most beautiful baby boy, Elias, who's our first grandson. And, but long story short, I was working at a coffee shop on Court Street. This is a couple years ago. Harley walks into this coffee shop. But Harley, who is, when I say hipster, he's more like homeless guy than hipster. He would just wear random thrift store clothes. His hair was, and he walks in in a suit. I said, Harley, I mean, you look good. What are, what are you doing? He said, dress well, test well. I was like, excuse me? He said, dress well, test well. I was like, what, what does that mean? I never heard that term before. He said, well, I have a huge test today. And I heard that if you dress well, you'll test well. So I wore a suit hoping to get a better grade on the test. And I said, really? So he takes the test. He said, it works. So then he wore a suit every time he had a test at school, he'd wear a suit. Researchers have learned that in medical school, students who wear a lab coat test better than students who don't. And they call this enclosed cognition, meaning when you dress a certain way, it makes you think a certain way. When there's confidence in how you're dressed, it gives you confidence in how to walk. When you're confident in how you're dressed, it gives you confidence on how to behave, meaning it makes you walk a little bit taller and walk a little bit straighter. And here he says, put on Christ. You are clothed in righteousness. When you realize you are clothed in righteousness, that you are dressed well so you can test well. God didn't say, I want you to, I want you to test well, then I'll give you the clothes of righteousness. He said, I'm giving you the clothes of righteousness so that you can test well and you'll walk differently than if you were dressed like the old you. He also says you need to renew your mind or put on the mind of Christ. So every day you need to make sure you put on your clothes of righteousness. When you look in the mirror, look at yourself say, I'm clothed in righteousness. And I look good. Get a little fat around the belly. Get a little bald on top. But I'm clothed in righteousness. I'm holy unto God. But I'm also put on the mind of Christ. In school, we call it put on your thinking cap. I'm going to put on my thinking cap, which means every day, five minutes a day, I'm going to read God's word at least five minutes a day to renew my mind. What I'm doing is I'm putting God's thoughts in my mind. I'm putting on my thinking cap to renew my mind so I can walk out the life God has given me. But I'm also going to put on the character of Christ. I'm going to spend five minutes, at least five minutes a day in prayer, praying, God, let my heart and your heart be one. Let my character, let my attitude reflect yours. Paul said like this in Colossians. He says this in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, put on then. Everybody say put on. So something you got to put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint 
against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Then he starts talking about singing psalms and singing spiritual songs and singing praise unto God. Meaning you need to look in the mirror. I'm clothed in righteousness. And I'm, I got God's thinking cap on. I'm going to thank God's wisdom, God's thoughts today. I'm going to protect my mind from the enemy. I'm going to renew my mind and strengthen my mind. But I'm also going to put on love. I'm going to put on a compassionate heart. I'm going to put on meekness. I'm going to put on peace. I'm going to put on long-suffering. I'm going to put on forgiveness. I'm going to put these things on every single day. Before you leave the house, you always check yourself in the mirror. Make sure you're checking the right things. Then finally says, then put a praise on it. It's interesting, you put a praise on it before the day starts instead of when the day is over. Because there's some days, if I don't start with praise, every morning I listen to NPR on Spotify, then I listen to the same playlist, two playlists, Maverick City playlist and a Sunday morning playlist I made because it has Fred Hammond on it, it has Marvin Winans on it, it has every, every, Marvin Sapp, it has everybody I wanted. Because I start my day with praise. Because I've got to put praise on me. I'm going to put praise on it, I'm going to put praise on me because if I dress well I'll test well and for some of you it's time to put something off time to put something off if you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment you can't live the new life Jesus has for you while dragging the old you behind you and I think I was thinking about this this morning I think the reason in our culture, we're so slow to reckon ourselves dead to sin. It's because we believe the lie of humanism that tells us, you just gotta love yourself. You just gotta love yourself. You just gotta love yourself. And it's very difficult to kill something that you love. David said, wretched man am I. Peter kind of said the same thing, I'm a failure. So you're not going to kill something that you think should live. But the old you who's full of sin, full of depravity, full of lust, full of anger, full of greed, full of selfishness, does not belong on the other side of the cross. And just as Paul said, it's time to start putting those things off so we can start putting some new things on. Just imagine what the world would look like if the church started putting off our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our anger, and started putting on meekness, compassionate hearts, patience, forgiveness, peace, and above all, love that binds it all together. It's time for us to start dressing correctly again. I know every head bowed, every eye closed. Two questions. One right now. As I'm describing putting some things off and killing some sin in your life. Maybe some of you have been walking through some old doors. Maybe some of you have been trying to tame sin rather than kill sin. Or maybe you've been whitewashing your sin by not calling it sin, just calling it you know, mistakes or slip-ups. Or, and you realize today that it's time to start killing some things off because the stench of it is just driving you absolutely crazy. Every head bowed every eye closed. That's you. So that today's the day I need to put some things off. 
I'm not going to have you come forward. not going to have you stand up. Just between you and God, one private moment. It's a moment of confession to let God begin to work in your heart. If that's you, I just want you to slip your hand up right where you are real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that the work of the cross, that the blood of your son Jesus deals with a sin, but the cross deals with a sinner. And Father, we reckon the old man dead. We consider him dead in its trespasses, but also alive in Christ. So Father, for every open door, we pray that you close it. For every temptation, we pray that you provide a way of escape. Father, for every sin that's been attached so closely, we pray that you can cast them off to run the race with endurance. Second question, maybe some of you, you've put off the old man, but you haven't put on the new. But you're not walking in that meekness, the humility, that love, that compassion, that peace. If we we're back at the beginning, maybe you're a naked Christian where everything that happens affects you. He said, today I need to make up every morning and put on Christ. That's you, real quick. Just slip your hand up right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. We thank you, the Father. You do not leave us empty. Father, as we pour out the old, you pour in the new. And let's pray right now for everyone in this room to wake up every morning to put on Christ, to put on righteousness, to put on the mind of Christ, to put on the heart of Christ, and to never leave the house without being covered by the blood of Jesus. Father, as we do, I pray it changes the way we walk, it changes the way we talk, it changes the way we live, so we can live for your glory and live in the purpose and the destiny of the new that you've made us to be. In Jesus' name.